Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I'm thinking of today's gospel in the context of our, our conversation tonight, right? Love one another. And actually, our Lord is, is a little more uh, clear. It's not love your neighbor as yourself here, which is manageable, <laughs> right? Some days, yeah. No, it's, uh, unless you're in an airport. Uh, no, but it's love one another as I have loved you. And St. Thomas, in his commentary, jobs this out for us. Our Lord's love of us is totally gratuitous. Not because we are deserving of it, not, not even because we're not deserving of it. Like, a, you know, I love you because you're a nuisance, right? right? No, it's not that. It's completely gratuitous. It's efficacious. It changes us. But then, right, St. Thomas points out, right, it puts a demand on us. You are my friends if you keep my commandments. Hmm? I think of these things because this, in our topic for tonight, the full flower of this in a human person, in St. Catherine, the answer to this call, love one another as I have loved you. All right, so we can go to that map, Andy. <clears throat> My dad drew this map. It's actually for the Galileo talk, but it's the same country. <laughs> so... So just a couple of, a couple of back, background details, right? Italy in the, third, in the 14th century is not united, right? Italy's not united till 19th yeah, the 19th century under the Risorgimento. By the way, that was a bad event, like our own forced unification. I know I can say that because I'm here with the Army of Northern Virginia, right? <laughs> so, so Italy is divided into... Uh, what the Greeks would have called city-states, right? Florence, Pisa, Siena, there's uh, a ruler in Milan, there's the Papal States, and then the Kingdom of Naples, which owns uh, much of Sicily. This is a little bit before the Spanish come in, I think, uh, and then the Republic of Venice as well. But independent city-states, and that's important to understanding the St. Catherine story. Right? What's the other really big event of the 14th century? What's the, there are two. What are the two really big events of the 14th century? Yeah. Who said it? Plague? Very good. So St. Catherine is born right about the time the plague comes into the European basin. All right? And we'll see that in the story. And then what's going on in England, between England and France at this time? Who said it? Hundred Years' War, right? That's a name that 19th century historians have assigned to this event. Right? They didn't know, oh my gosh, 83 more years to go. No. And of course, 100 years war, the, the, the principal figure from our perspective is St. Joan, right? Okay? But, it, but the 100 years war is not 100 years of nonstop fighting. There, there are periodic breaks. And during these periodic breaks, people we would call mercenaries now, right? There's plenty of them in 
the Virginia, D.C., Maryland area, I know, right, would come down, John Hawkwood was a famous one with his white company, would come down, and then they would make a fortune serving as soldiers of fortune in the, in the wars between the independent states of central Italy, okay? So plague and war, this is the age in which St. Catherine is born and lives, right? And then in the church, we're, we're dealing with the, uh, not yet, Avignon, the Avignon captivity, right? So Bernard de Gaulle, right, a Frenchman who's so much of a Frenchman, right, decides to stay in, in Avignon, right? And so the papacy has been in Avignon for some time now. And then, of course, the schism follows uh, Catherine's life. So the, that gives you kind of a quick snapshot of, of the circumstances or the history or the place and time in which this amazing story takes place. In 1985, uh, the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, uh, inaugurated a series of annual lectures named after the school's third and best known president, Sister Mary Madaleva Wolf. Sister Madaleva, circle of close friends included T.S. Eliot, Frank Sheed, C.S. Lewis. She established an interdisciplinary curriculum on Christian culture which was directed by a man named Bruno Schlesinger, who was a convert from Judaism and a student of Christopher Dawson. Now, I would say that this little Midwestern Catholic college, to quote the Virginia Slims commercials, right, has come a long way, baby. Not only has the school's theater served as the venue for this notorious play of lesbian advocacy, right? This list of Madaleva lecturers is a who's who of Catholic feminism, American Catholic feminism. So among them, outspoken advocate of ordination of women, Joan Chittister, who once wrote, I celebrate myself. The poet Walt Whitman wrote, the thought is so delicious it is almost obscene. Imagine the joy that would come with celebrating the self, our achievements, our experiences, our existence. Imagine what it would be like to look into the mirror and say, as God taught us, that is good. Also on the list of Madaleva lecturers, Teilhard de Chardin follower Monica Helwig, who was here recently, right? at Georgetown, champion of liberation theology, outspoken critic of uh, uh, Pope St. John Paul II's Ex Corte Ecclesia, which was his broadside fired in 1990 at the multitude of Catholic colleges and universities that teach heresy, promote disobedience, and give scandal. In 2001, the Madaleva lecturers signed their name to something that they called the Madaleva Manifesto, a message of hope and courage to women in the church. So it reads in part, 
To women in ministry and theological studies, we say, reimagine what it means to be the whole body of Christ. The way things are now is not the design of God. The Spirit calls us to a gospel feminism that respects the human dignity of all and who inspires us to be faithful disciples to stay in the struggle to overcome oppression of all kinds, whether based on gender, sexual orientation, race, or class. To the young women of the church, we say, carry forward the cause of gospel feminism. We deplore and hold ourselves morally bound to protest and resist in church and society all actions, customs, laws, and structures that treat women as less than fully human. The Declaration ends on a syncretistic note. We invite all others of all traditions to join us in imagining the great shalom of God. So it's not clear what the great shalom of God is. It is clear that the signers of this manifesto, when they objected to the way things are now, were not lamenting, for example, the widespread use of artificial contraception. Their chief cause is a metaphysical impossibility, the ordination of women. Not by accident, the Madaleva Manifesto was signed on April 29th, Feast of Catherine of Siena. So it's not so difficult to understand why feminists have attempted to claim the patronage of St. Catherine. After all, a version of her life could go something like this. At six years of age, a young girl decides not to marry. At age 12, she's pressured by her parents to submit to her arranged marriage. She refuses. She defiantly cuts off her hair and neglects her appearance. Later, this young woman develops quite a following in her town. Men and women alike flock to her for counsel. Her reputation spreads. And soon she is mediating in and bringing influence to bear in political and political circles unknown to women. She arbitrates family feuds. She brokers peace within and between cities. Her reputation spreads throughout all of Europe. Her advice commands generals, princes, queens. She scolds the Pope himself and he follows her instruction to return the papacy to Rome. She writes one of the greatest works of medieval literature. She accomplishes all of this in 33 years, when nearly 600 years later, she is named the doctor of the Roman Catholic Church, the oldest of the old boy networks, right? She is only the second woman to receive this honor. A real glass ceiling breaker. She made it in a man's world. What's wrong with this version of events? It is not so much the facts as the motives. Central to feminism is the self-absorption of Sister Chittister's looking glass gazer. St. Catherine, her life, however, was far from being a celebration of herself. It was a celebration of her savior, his suffering, and his mercy. 
St. Catherine never stood in front of a mirror and loved herself. Rather, she put into practice the truth her holy bridegroom revealed to her early in her mystical life. I am that which is, you are that which is not. On the Feast of the Annunciation, 1347, the same year that the Black Plague enters the European Basin, Lapa Benincasa gave birth to twin daughters, Caterina and Giovanna, numbers 24 and 25, to Lapa and her husband, the same man, Giacomo. Giovanna died in infancy, and whatever grief the family felt, they were consoled in their faith that the infant soul rested with God. Raymond of Capua, St. Catherine's first biographer, makes a bad pun on her name, saying that Caterina would live to take a whole catena, a chain of souls to heaven. What we know of St. Catherine's early childhood is embedded in pious legend, asserts the introduction to the English translation of the dialogue. Still, there are good reasons, even for the skeptics, to take the bulk of the stories of Catherine's childhood at face value. Enough of the visions and miracles of her public life have been corroborated in sufficient detail to suggest a childhood marked by such phenomena. Moreover, the hagiography written by Blessed Raymond of Capua, Catherine's first spiritual director, is the product of interviews with friends and family members, including Mona Lapa, her, her cousin, the Dominican priest, Fra Tommaso de la Fonte, who began life as a black plague orphan adopted by the Benincasa family. The well-documented severe privations she embraced as an adult were so habitual, there's every reason to believe that she established these practices as a child. What is certain is that little Caterina Benincasa had a reputation among her siblings and friends and among adults as well, as a joyful and pious child. And little wonder, the Benincasa household, if a little hectic, was very much a place where things were good at home, right? Benincasa. Lapa and Giacomo were prosperous and loved one another a great deal. Lapa already, in her old age, nursed the baby Caterina, while ever keeping her post at the helm of the Benincasa household. If Lapa was loud and prone to outbursts, well, we might excuse her, giving a married life marked by perpetual pregnancy and childbirth. Moreover, there is heroism tragedy in a woman who bears 25 children and buries most of them. From Caterina's home, on the Via dei Tintori, the street of the, the dyers, right? That's how the Benincasas made their living. They dyed uh, textiles. Rose up a steady stream of prayers and devotions mixed with the vapors of the dyes, all together for the greater glory of God. The extended Benincasa family included priests, 
members of the Third Order of St. Dominic, which Catherine would one day join, even a canonized saint, John Columbini. Catherine was never sent to school. Regular readings from the Bible, the preaching of the Sienese Dominicans, regular telling of the heroic lives of saints comprised her education. Such a family today we would describe as devout, and surely Catherine's family was, though it was not unusual in its time for its piety. Giacomo was a man of even temper and spotless reputation. There was once a competitor of his uh, who sought with some success to ruin his reputation with falsehoods about an unpaid debt. Giacomo's response was to assemble his family and pray for the bearer of false witness. The man apologized and cleared the family's name. Giacomo tolerated no profanity in the home. Catherine's sister, Bonaventura, was so accustomed to an atmosphere of chaste talk, she became physically ill when she heard her new husband, Niccolo, engaging in loose talk with his friends and persuaded Niccolo to mend his offensive speech. Caterina looked for solitude in her holy but hectic home, solitude to play pious games, imitating the great saints of Tuscany. She would kneel and recite an ave on each step while she climbed the staircase in the Benincasa household. She would whip herself with a little knotted cord. She was a leader among her playmates, and they would join her in this discipline. At an early age, she began the practice of abstaining from meat, though she hid this from her parents by giving her dinner along to her brother Stefano or to the one of many of the cats that were such a feature in, and still are in Italian households. As Blessed Raimondo put it, the little disciple of Christ began to fight against the flesh before the flesh had begun to rebel. Before regarding the pious practices of this little Tuscan girl as so unusual, we should recall with how much enthusiasm children in our own day imitate celebrities, right? In her play, Katarina Benenkowska be became the heroes of her day, the great saints of the church. Nothing so admirable can be said in the behavior of today's pre-adolescent girls, you know, who are so taken with pop stars and, and fashion models. But in, in a sense, we're talking about the same thing, right? Emulating the heroes of the age. When Catherine was six, she and her brother Stefano were returning home from a day in the country at the home of her sister Buonaventura. Pausing at the top of the steps leading down to the city, she looked across the valley at the Cathedral of San Domenico, the Dominican church. Above the roof of the church, she saw a vision of Christ seated on his throne dressed in the robes of the Pope and wearing the papal tiara. At his sides were St. Peter and Paul 
and St. John the Evangelist. Smiling at the little girl, Christ rose from his throne and blessed her with the sign of the cross. Meanwhile, Stefano had hurried along, unaware that his baby sister was no longer behind him. He returned, he grabbed her arm, and he shook it. Come along, what are you doing here? Glancing at her brother, she said, if you could see what I do, you would not be disturbing me. Lifting her eyes heavenward, again she saw that her vision had vanished. Angry with herself for taking her eyes off her savior, Catherine burst into tears. The vision only reinforced the girl's piety and devotion. Now, when the Dominican mendicants would walk in their black and white robes past her home, she would run out to kiss the paving stones that their feet had touched. Inspired by the stories of the Desert Fathers, Catherine one day sought solitude in a limestone cave outside the city walls. Beginning to pray, she found herself in a trance from which she awoke, standing right outside the city gate. She concluded that the hermit life was not her vocation. She hurried home, speaking to no one about her trance. She increased the severity of her fasting and penitential scourging, and at seven, according to Raimondo, she made a vow of chastity, which by the time she turned 12, would run afoul of her parents' designs. <clears throat> so a little about Siena. For a medieval Sienese family, the marriage of a daughter was more than just finding a suitable mate. Sigurd Unset, and everything I've got here, most of what I've got here is completely stolen from her. If you haven't read Sigurd Unset's, it's my favorite work of hagiography, and Ignatius Press brought it back into print, I don't know, five, seven, eight years ago. You should get it and read it. And by the way, it's a wonderful lesson in the history of medieval Tuscany. And you should read her trilogy of medieval Norway, right? Kristen Lovren's daughter. Sigurd Unset puts it this way. For the people of the Middle Ages, the family was still the most powerful protector of the rights and welfare of the individual. In our atomized modern world, this is very hard for us to get our imagination around. In a time so full of unrest and disturbance, the protection a man could expect from the community, whether state or town, was at best uncertain. But a group consisting of fathers, sons, and sons-in-law who held fast together and faithfully defended their common interests at least promised a certain amount of security. Of the Tuscan communes, Siena was surely the most tumultuous, played by one feud after another and then constantly fighting with Florence, Pisa, Luca. Under these circumstances, to say nothing of the fact that Mona Lapa herself had made it her vocation to love and serve her husband and to make a home for her family, we can understand why Monalapa would be impatient with an adolescent girl who avoided standing in the doorway or leaning out the window and showed no interest in her appearance in an effort to attract suitors. Catherine had kept her vow of virginity to herself. The matter came to a head when Catherine, having gone along for a short while, 
with her mother's desires to keep up her appearance, recovered her intense devotion, and cut her golden brown hair, which was Catherine's greatest beauty. The family priest, Fra Tommaso, who had counseled this act when she confided to him that she had already promised herself to Christ, the reaction from the family was severe. You wicked girl, her brothers said to her. Do you imagine that you can escape our authority by cutting off your hair? It will grow back. And you shall be married even if it breaks your heart. You'll never have peace and quiet until you give in, until, we do, until you do as we say. Lapa dismissed her housemaid and reduced Catherine to the role of family servant. She kept her busy day and night. She took away her private bedroom, which was Catherine's chief joy. Catherine, however, found joy instead in service to her family. She imagined her brothers to be the apostles. She turned her kitchen into a sanctuary. And it's this time she learns from the Holy Spirit to build with great counsel, to build within her soul an inner cell where she finds solitude to contemplate her Savior, whatever the environment. Build an inner cell within your soul and never leave it. She would later tell her disciples who complained to her of being overburdened with the problems of the world. Common in Siena at this time were the lay women of the third order of St. Dominic, the mantellate, right, or the cloaked sisters. So, originally founded by St. Dominic as the militia of Jesus Christ for the protection of the order's property, the third order evolves by the 13th century into the sisters and brothers of penitents of St. Dominic's Third Order. They exist to this day. There's a chapter over at CUA. The Mentalate were mostly widows who offered the rest of their lives to God while continuing to live in the world, caring for the poor and the destitute. Catherine Benicasa, when she was a teenager, longed to be one of the Mentalata. Inspired by a vision in which St. Dominic handed her the black and white robe, Catherine decided to make known to her family the vow of chastity she had made as a small girl and her desire to join the Dominican tertiaries. In my early childhood, she told them, I promised my Savior, my Lord Jesus Christ, that I would always remain a virgin, and it was not out of childishness that I promised this. I have promised him that I would never take another husband. It would be easier to melt a stone than to tear this holy resolution from my heart. My advice to you is that you therefore break off these negotiations for my marriage, for on this point I shall never obey you. If you chase me from this home because of this decision, so be it. I have a bridegroom who is so rich and powerful that he will never let me suffer once. Stunned silence and then loud wails from Mona Lapa at her daughter's assertiveness. The same direct manner that Catherine would one day use with popes and princes. Giacomo, who had seen enough of his daughter's miraculous behavior, understood and announced that the family would not stand in the way of her vow. That they could not have found a better bridegroom for her than the one she had chosen. He turned to Katerina and asked her to pray for the family. She now pursued her vocation full bore. 
She whipped herself three times a day, wore a chain around her waist that cut into her skin, confined her diet to raw vegetables and water, and deprived herself of sleep to the point where she slept only a half hour every other day. It is almost certain, by the way, that the severity of these penances would never have passed muster with a spiritual director, right? We think of St. Francis telling St. Clair, you know, go, go eat something, yeah, right? But Catherine had only the stories of St. Benedict and St. Francis to guide her, and she was convinced the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. St. Catherine would later counsel moderation in physical discipline, telling her followers that such exercises could become an obsession that far from being a means to perfection could interfere with spiritual progress, right? In 1366, Catherine became a mantellata, receiving the white robe, which symbolized purity, and the black cape symbolizing humility. She was 19 years old. For the next three years, she lived in solitude in her home on the Via dei Tintori, leaving the house only to go to Mass in the early morning at the Church of San Domenico. It was during this time that she experienced her spiritual espousals, ecstatic unions with Christ, deepening her love for Him and her understanding of theological realities. Realities which she would dictate during sev her several day long ecstasies at the end of her life, which gives us her dialogue. Also during this time, she was tormented by demons, fiercely tormented, who would reveal to Catherine uh, the uh, images, horrifying images of the most unnatural acts in a fruitless effort to tempt her. These ecstasies culminated in her mystical marriage to Christ. It was the final day of Fat Tuesday, or Mardi Gras. I don't know what the Italians call it, right? All of Siena is feasting. Catherine is praying in her cell, doing penance for the sins of the revelers. Christ appears to her and says, For my sake, you have thrown away the vanity of this world. You have regarded the lusts of the senses as nothing and chosen me as the only joy of your heart. Therefore, while all the others here in your house feast and enjoy themselves, I will celebrate the solemn marriage feast with your soul. I shall betroth you to myself as I have promised. In the presence of his mother, St. John and St. Paul, Jesus placed a ring on her finger, a diamond with four large pearls. The ring was visible only to her throughout her life. My daughter, from now on, you must undertake without protest all the works which I come to demand of you. For armed with the power of faith, you shall triumphantly overcome all your opponents. Catherine was now ready to enter the world. She began at once a course of almsgiving. Soon she was caring for the most wretched of the sick at the hospital, Santa Maria della Scala, where she took a small cell in the cellar, right directly, by the way, across the street from the Duomo in Siena. There were in those days, writes Sigurdunset, a number of patients in the hospitals whom an angel from heaven could not have satisfied. It is the same in our day, and it will always be so. And these became Catherine's 
patience. And she strove entirely to do everything humanly possible to lessen their suffering. Old courtesans and superannuated prostitutes who had long ago been forced to retire from the life of pleasure to which they had belonged found bitter consolation in making the work of their young nurse as difficult as possible. There was an old hag, her name was Cheka. She repeatedly cursed Catherine, accusing her of sleeping with monks. Uh, as the young girl went about day in and day out, bathing her, feeding her, cleaning her room. Catherine contracted leprosy on her hands from Cheka. She did not waver in her care. And when Cheka died, having come to peace at last through Catherine's prayers and patience, it was only Catherine, the young dyer's daughter, who would bury the stinking corpse. And when she laid down the shovel, she saw her dirt-covered hands had been healed. Another patient, an, an aging mentaletta named Palmerina, at first called Catherine a fraud, but she converted before death. A third, Andrea, a breast cancer victim, whose condition was so advanced that Catherine herself endured extraordinary suffering from the intolerable stench, also inspired by Catherine's heroic charity in caring for her when no one else and died in peace. By the way, just quick aside here, a, a Dominican, a daughter of St. Catherine, if you will, Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, who established the order of nuns in New York to care for incurable cancer patients. And one of the rules, if you will, in uh, Hawthorne's uh, order was there can be no complaint, no reacting to the advanced state of the cancer. All right, back to the 14th century. News spread quickly of the miraculous and selfless young girl, and Caterina Benincasa's following began to grow. For when she was not hard at the corporal works of mercy, praying and fasting in her cell, going into ecstasy after receiving communion, she was counseling her followers, the Caterinati, they were called, her circle of intimates. Mama, they called her. And their number included monks and nuns, poets and lawyers, former philanderers, and other once-hardened sinners whose souls had been turned heavenward by the prayers, suffering, and Christ-like example of this little saint. In time, there had to be a team of confessors, full-time priests, appointed to handle all whom Catherine was converting, including a pair of criminals, right? You all know the story, as they were on their way to the scaffold. And in time, her leadership, wisdom, and patience landed her in the role of mediator in these endless political quarrels and blood feuds in the Republic of Siena. By the time Catherine was 27, her reputation had spread throughout Tuscany, and the profound knowledge of a girl in matters scriptural, theological, and metaphysical, who had had no formal training in any of these things, created the need for an inquiry. So she was called to the Dominicans in Florence. And for hours, Dominican theologians questioned Catherine. And what did they find? Nothing more than a holy woman given exceptional graces by God. 
In Florence, she meets her new spiritual director and lifelong friend and biographer, uh, Fra Raimondo, Raimondo de Capua. By the way, he's buried also. Who, who's seen uh, St. Catherine's tomb at Sopra Minerva in Rome, right? He's also buried in, in the same church, Blessed Raimondo, who returned with Catherine to Siena to take charge of the Dominican monastery there. When Catherine returned to her town, the summer of 1374, she found that the plague had returned, and it is during the second round of plague that she performs many miraculous cures, including of Raimondo himself, and of Messer Matteo de Cheni de Fazio, who was the rector of the hospital, the Casa della Misericordia. Get up, he's laying in his bed, the rector of the hospital, dying. Get up, Messer Matteo, get up. This is no time to lie and lay in bed. Indeed not. And when the plague had passed, the more critical work of saving souls remained. One young man, Niccolo de Tolda, had been sentenced to death for an evening of wine-fueled, hot-headed talk against Siena's current ruling clique. Angry at God, Niccolo was in no mood to prepare for a holy death, but St. Catherine's grace and charm prevailed upon him to make a good confession. She met him at the scaffold, and she held his head in her hands as the executioner's axe fell. G.K. Chesterton, in his paradoxes, of Christianity writes, refers to the sublime pity of St. Catherine, who in the official shambles kissed the bloody head of the criminal. The confusing and perpetual turmoil of 14th century Tuscany that took the life of young Niccolo soon claimed the time and energy of Catherine in her circle. She had three great successes in diplomacy. The first was convincing Pisa and then, for a short time, Luca, not to join the growing anti-papal league, an uneasy alliance between Florence and Bernabo Visconti, who was the, uh, who, who, the ruler of uh, Milan. Really, one of the age's true monsters. He owned thousands of hunting hounds, and he forced his hapless subjects to, you know, to board his hunting dogs at, in their homes, by the way, including the monasteries. So they were all filled with his hunting hounds. And if a dog died, woe betide, whoever was, and ever who's watched this dog died, a severe beating was in store for its custodian. The Pope delivered his bull of excommunication to Bernabo Visconti, and Bernabo Visconti cut it up, and he made the papal emissaries eat it. So the parchment, the silk, the wax seal, uh, the, the, the cord, all of it. Through her diplomacy, Catherine kept the Pisans away from this unholy alliance. Her second great success was when she reconciled Florence with the Pope. This work began in Avignon, where she represented the faithless Florentines to Gregory XI. It's in Avignon, by the way, that uh, the story of Catherine She's in, in the room with a number of ladies of court, <laughs> and she goes fleeing out of the room, and her attendants come to her, Catherine, what? you're being rude to this woman. And she said, I'm sorry that the smell of her soul was so foul that I couldn't be present in the room with her. Also in Avignon, the courtesans regarded Catherine as kind of a novelty, and she would go into ecstasy after receiving communion 
And then these, these ladies, if you will, uh, would, would poke at her toes with a needle, you know, when she's in ecstasy to, to verify if she was a fraud or not. The work began, begun in Avignon came to fruition in 1378 when Gregory's successor, Urban VI, lifted the papal interdict under which the Florentines had been struggling. Aside from the inestimable spiritual costs of the interdict, right, sacraments aren't available when a town is under interdict, right? Uh, Fray Romando, in his biography, explains the practical costs. Everywhere in the world, Florentines were seized by governments and relieved of their property in countries where they had business connections. Once Florence was reconciled with the Pope, they became loyal children and stood by Urban in the Westerism that follows Catherine's death. More important than the political details, however, is the consistent theme of Catherine's many political letters. By the way, there are hundreds of these letters, hundreds of them, and these are among the most valuable of primary source documents to historians of 14th century Tuscany. Catherine could not write. She was always attended by a band of secretaries, and the story goes that she could dictate three letters on three different topics to three different recipients at the same time without you know, losing the thread of anyone. Some 400 letters, right? She stresses throughout these, what? A good ruler must first be a good person. I, I, I know that's a novel idea in our, in our own age, right? The outward political conduct of a ruler was the effect of the quality of his interior life. <laughs> Freedom from the slavery of sin through sacramental confession was necessary before one could rule justly, she argued. Echoing, of course, who? St. Augustine. Her message that a man who cannot master himself cannot be master of anyone has fallen on deaf ears in our own age where public officials and their followers insist that their private conduct has no influence on their capacity to discharge the duties of their office. It's not true. Catherine's third and greatest political success was also a spiritual triumph. She convinced Gregory XI to return the papacy from Avignon to Rome. Catherine's church there in Rome, Sopra Minerva, right, is built in, in the middle of this age, and it's fitting that she is ultimately buried there, but it's really the one church that's being built in Rome at this time, because Rome is a total mess in the absence of the papacy. There's nothing going on. People have fled. It's, it's crime-ridden. It's a, it's a horrible place to live. It is doubtless this action, telling the Pope, get back to Rome, right, Estovir, it is doubtless this action that most excites the feminists because Catherine speaks truth to power, and she does, right? But they miss the point. At no time in her correspondence with the Pope, Pope Gregory, which is direct, it's direct, praise God, she doesn't question his authority. On the contrary, she tells him, Estovir, you are the man. Use your authority. If she had political failures, they were in not inspiring the princes of Europe to join Gregory in a crusade to slay the Turk. I mentioned John Hawkwood, right? One of these English mercenaries 
who came down during one of the breaks in the Hundred Years' War and makes a fortune in the, in the internecine wars between Florence and Siena and Pisa. He's buried, there's a monument to him in the Florence Cathedral. He made a, a magnificent fortune. St. Catherine writes him a letter. She says, if you enjoy killing people so much, why don't you take your white company and go and lead a crusade against the Turk? So no question here about Catherine being a pacifist or anything like that, or not understanding the threat of Islam. Praise God. And her second failure, not seeing the Western schism resolved before her death, though it is resolved after her death. She lays the groundwork for it. St. Catherine's great spiritual contribution behind, beyond that of her daily example is her dialogue dictated during a five-day ecstasy. I'm trying to remember the publisher, Christian Classics. Oh, and I'll think of the name of the translator. It's quite good. Susan, she's a, she's a Dominican nun, I think. It's quite good. What? Nafki, is that her name? Yeah. It begins with an N, something like that. Yeah, it's very good. I recommend it to you. It's not light reading. It's a few lines at a time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, it, it's, but it's extraordinary work of, of medieval Tuscan poetry. Paul VI, when he declared Catherine a doctor of the church in 1970, described her theology as reflective of the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, in a surprising degree, but not so surprising. St. Thomas, of course, was a Dominican. The theme of the dialogue is the soul's journey to salvation through ever deeper union with the sufferings of Christ, from which flow, and this is at the center of Catherine's thought, all of his mercy. Sufferings of Christ, and from there, all of his mercy. She exalted, Paul VI said, the redeeming power of the adorable blood of the Son of God shed on the wood of the cross an expanding love for the salvation of all generations of mankind. After dictating her dialogue, Caterina Benincasa left for Rome. The year was 1378. Her Caterinati <coughs> followed her to the Eternal City and lived life much as they had in Siena before Catherine had begun her political adventures. They cared for the poor and the destitute, begging for their own needs. They copied the saints' letters. They listened to her counsel. So severe had been her fasts. By 1380, Catherine could take no food or water at all. Each morning, so, you know, probably her throat just was no longer functioning. Her esophagus probably no longer, no longer functioning. Each morning, she struggled to Mass at St. Peter's and remained there all day in prayer. So this is St. Peter's before the existing one that Michelangelo is. So right there on the tomb of whatever is left of the Constantinian Basilica there. She's, so she's going to the tomb of St. Peter every day. Remained there all day in prayer at the tomb of the first pope. You know, you can sort of imagine her there, kind of sort of slumped over the tomb praying for the, his successors for whom she had fought so hard. In her final eight days, she was struck with a paralysis from the waist down. When at the age of 33, she is at last united with her bridegroom, thousands and thousands of mourners came, and miracle after miracle was attributed to her intercession. I mean, really charming ones, folks. There's a woman who felt guilt because she, ha she hadn't got dinner on the table for her husband and son because she had been 
praying at the tomb of St. Catherine, and then she gets back, and there it is all sort of simmering on the stove. Right? It's beautiful. Yeah. I believe all of these, by the way. I mean, I seriously do. I'm quite serious. Canonized within a century by her fellow Sienese, the Piccolomini Pope, Pius II. Right? If you've been to the Duomo in Siena and gone off to the left there, you've seen the Piccolomini Library. Extraordinary champion of the liberal arts, if you will, of learning. Canonized within a century by her fellow Sienese, Pius II, St. Catherine's body lies appropriately under the main altar in the Dominican Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome. Why appropriately? Of course, this site of an ancient temple to the goddess of wisdom is now transformed in Christ as the resting place of one of the church's wisest saints. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. Thank you, Mr. I hope you kept the time. That was perfect. Okay. Uh, it, some talks that we'd recommend kind of continuing this theme. There's two talks that Alice von Hildebrand gave at the Institute. Uh, the first being Essential Elements, the Role of Women in the Church and Society. And then also Molieris Dignitatem, Radical Feminism in the Restoration of the Dignity and Vocation of Women. Those are two talks uh, by Alice, and then also um, a talk by Father Hezekiah, From Death to Life. This is a study of the holy women of the Roman canon. So Felicity, Perpetua, um, and then also Father Scalia gave a talk, Shadows of the Virgin, Holy Women in the Old Testament. Okay, so just continuing the theme. That's a very good talk, by the way. Yeah, there you go. It's excellent, yeah. All right, does anyone have any questions? A very quick question, where is the archives of those letters that she wrote? Oh, wow, that's an excellent question, and I don't know that I, I, I'm capable of answering it. Uh, and I'm sure they're probably spread about. I, I doubtless some are in that Piccolomini library in Siena, but somebody asked me after, so one of my specialties is not answering the question I was asked, so uh, somebody asked me after uh, which, which book I recommended, and so let me just say Sigrid Unset, S-I-G-R-I-D space U-N-D-S-E-T, Catherine of Siena, you can get it from Ignatius Press. And just so you know, Sigrid Unset is the greatest female writer of all time. And her, sorry Jane Austen fans, it's true. And, uh, and her trilogy of medieval Norway, Kristen Lovren's Daughter, which was an excellent translation that just came out from Penguin about eight years ago or less by a woman named Tina Nunnale. Um, the Penguin translation is very good. I, I recommend it to you. Sigrid Unset uh, led a, a, a very difficult life of suffering much, many self-inflicted wounds, uh, as we would say, uh, and ended up uh, Dominican tertiary, and then wrote uh, this biography of Catherine of Siena, and it was rejected. She won the Nobel Prize, by the way, fled to America, had a correspondence with Willa Cather, and uh, fled Norway as the Nazis were coming in. Anyway, she, she wrote this biography of Catherine of Siena late in life, and the original publisher rejected it, and Sheed and Ward published it posthumously. So it only came out in one edition, and praise God, Ignatius brought it back into print. 
But if you ever find the original hardcover from Sheen Ward, you know, in a used bookstore, it's well worth snapping up. Anyone else? Hit him with the hard one, Jerry. Oh, I think it's an easy one. Can you speak of the stigmata? St. Catherine's stigmata. She received her stigmata at the time, I believe, of her uh, spiritual espousal to our Lord, and it was visible only to her, and it became visible after she died. The church where she received it is in Pisa, and it's impossible to get into. Uh, I've been there about four times, and every time I go, it's closed, and it's on the opposite side of the Arno. It's a little church where once was ha uh, Della Spina, right, I think? So a, th a thorn from the crown of thorns was there, and every time you go there, it's closed. <laughs> but it's on the opposite side of the Arno from the Piazza dei Miracoli uh, in, in Pisa, and so I've walked by it about four times and banged on the door, and it, so I was wrong. It was not during her spiritual espousal, it was during a visit to Pisa, and she was in that church, and that's when she received the stigmata, and it was visible to herself only until she died. Yes. At what point did she survive only on Holy Communion? I thought I heard that she ate nothing. She ate no, no food at all except Holy Communion yeah. daily. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so she, she practiced very severe fast, and certainly by the time that she was in Rome, she was, at some point after coming to Rome, when exactly, I don't know, uh, and I don't know that anyone does know, uh, she can no longer swallow, or swallow with great difficulty. And, and this is believable, I'm not a gastroenterologist, but if there's one here who would like to comment, but I imagine if you stop using your esophagus, then it, it falls out of use. So her body is shutting down for how long? I don't know, but she does go, as I said in my remarks, to the tomb of St. Peter every day in Rome and receives, and, uh, but it is a portion of her life, and then a fi finally paralysis sets in. I mean, the human body needs food. It does, and so how do you say this without scandalizing people? She probably starved herself to death. I mean, that, that's, that's probably, at 33, it's not a, a natural time to die. Thank you, Dr. Mr. Check. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I how do we, apo not apologize, but how do we answer, to give a Catholic answer to our non-Catholic friends whom we love when they criticize us for, for not only praying to the saints, but literally studying them and trying to emulate them? And my answer's always been, we learn so much about God from them and what they write, but they don't, they, they shake their heads. How, how do we answer? People like you have studied the saints, and, and it's changed your life. So how can we convince our friends of, of the same? Because well, yes. So the last, everyone's different. I have an interest in history, and the way that I have tended to learn history is by reading the stories of, of human persons. And so the history of the church interests me mostly through the lives lived of actual human persons. And I don't know actually another way to know history, yeah, to tell you the truth. So on the question of our relationship with the saints, of course, my colleagues at Catholic Answers, Tim Staples and Jimmy Ake and Carla Broussard, Trent Horn, 
these guys are much better at defending the communion of saints from scripture and everything. This is what I, I'm not formally an apologist. I'm a guy who likes to tell stories who's been given an organization to run by the mysterious providence of God. But what I tell people is, look, would if you were suffering from some affliction or there was something that you desired, would you ask me to pray for you? And then they would say, well, of course I would. And so then I would say, well, if you would ask me to pray for you, who is a, a, a wretched sinner with all kinds of, you know, <laughs> defects, why wouldn't you ask one of the saints in heaven? Or by the way, why wouldn't you ask Jesus' mom wh who, who he's going to listen to, right? It seems very, oh, yes, yeah, it's sort of, you know, in a very charming but obvious way. Obviously charming. And that's, and that's what I say. And I remember one time I was... I was in the hospital room a long time ago with a Calvinist theologian whom I had the greatest affection for, and he was dying from some cancer. And, and, and I, I said, well, I, I'm praying for you. And he said, well, thank you for your prayers. And, I, and, you know, God forgive me, I couldn't resist the opportunity to say, well, wait, you want my prayers, but you wouldn't pray to the saints? And he says, oh, I think you've got me. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I'm quite confident Harold O.J. Brown, I'm quite confident he's, he's with the angels right now. He's a very fine man. But anyway, that's, that's kind of how I answer that question. But if you go to catholic.com, praying to saints, my goodness, pages and pages. We've got a question from one of our online viewers, Marilyn from uh, Nashville. And she asks, would you please explain more about St. Catherine's words at her death, sangue, sangue, sangue? Yeah, sure. Yeah, she means the blood, the blood, blood of Christ, right? And in, in that blood, of course, the suffering of our Lord uh, made manifest uh, at Calvary. And then from there, all of our Lord's mercy flows. I was in line for confession, I don't know, half dozen years ago. And I had uh, my missile that Angelus Press, God bless them, puts out, you know, the 1962 missile. And, and there's an examination of conscience in there. And, and it begins by making this assertion, the greatest of God's works are his mercy. How can that be? And I, I think, oh my goodness, he's done all these magnificent things, right? Of course, you can find that in St. Thomas. St. Thomas asserts this. The greatest of God's works are his mercy. By the way, extraordinarily consoling. This is, of course, what Catherine refers to, and what we can all take consolation in, uh, right, every time we're, we're lining up there for absolution. Thank you so much for your time and generosity, Mr. Chef. Appreciate it. Sure, sure, sure. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.